0: Issue for all women. Well hello there, welcome to episode 7 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and it's Shark Week on the Discovery Channel and in my uterus. I've genuinely synced with Shark Week, lovely stuff. I'm joined by...
1: I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've never seen a
2: film with Gerald Butler in it. And I'm Jen Offord and despite my best efforts I detest raw tomatoes.
0: Later on Hazel Davis shares her tips on how to fringe the Edinburgh Fringe like a fringe boss... I talk about why we should all be excited about the return of Roseanne, and then do
2: Disney's *The Fox and the Hound*. And I'll be talking about sport and the Women's Cricket World Cup.
0: Rosie Wilby gives us the lowdown on breakups, and Sarah Milliken has some thoughts on pets and pants. But first,
2: pay gaps, gaping holes, and R. Kelly. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q. Sting. Bush
1: Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we smile proudly at the news like Jacob Rees-Mogg when he shows off a new
2: child, or run screaming from it like he does when it feels its nappy. This week, the BBC was forced to disclose details of its star's salaries in a report that also revealed a gender pay gap the size of the Grand Canyon. The top seven earners were all men, with the Beeb's highest-paid woman, Claudia Winkleman, paid just a fifth of what the highest-paid man, Chris Evans, takes home. And Match of the Day presenter Gary Lineker apparently coming in at the equivalent of nine-and-a-bit Claire Baldings.
0: Clearly, Auntie has a lot of work to do in closing the gap, but the whole enforced revelation was something of a constrict by the Tories. Yeah, we were surprised too given the Conservative Party has disguised its dislike for the Beeb about as well as three owls in a dressing gown and a Burger King crown trying to pass as the Queen. Having cut bursaries for nurses and refused to lift the public sector pay cap, Theresa May gleefully ducked a question on public sector pay in PMQs by swiping at the BBC's high earners. A move about as effective as pointing, shouting, look, an aeroplane, then hiding behind someone shorter. Naturally,
2: renowned defenders of women, The Daily Mail and The Sun, were quick to be furious about the BBC's sexism, and the internet picked up its pitchforks before you could say, but doesn't everything about your publication reinforce the message that women are always less valuable than men? We're not fans of the gender pay gap either, although it is harder to accept criticism on the grounds of sexism by newspapers that last week, first and foremost, wanted us to know that the new Doctor Who has tits. Oh, yes. The son celebrated the announcement that the 13th Doctor would be
1: played by Jodie Whittaker with all the emotional maturity of, well I would say a 10 year old boy but I've spoken to one this week and other than the fact he was hoping for Richard Ayoade he's entirely untraumatized by the move. Nonetheless, at the sun, someone's regular trips to www.wherecaniwankatpicturesoffamouswomenstits.com paid off as they gratuitously used screen grabs from 2006 film Venus so we could all see the new Doctor's boobies. While over on the TV pages, they pretended they'd never even heard of her. Unconfirmed
2: reports suggest they later asked her to the school disco and pushed her over when she said no. Meanwhile, if you thought women were fucked, spare a thought for the BBC's BAME employees,
0: as not one made the top 25 highest earners. Q fanfare. Vince Cable is here to fill our gaping hole, guys. With Joe Swinson taking herself out of the 12-horse race early doors, and the others dropping out left, right and whatever happened to centre, St Vince became de facto leader of the Lib Dems. On the veteran politician's appointment, the party took to Twitter to point out the absence of anything looking like a middle road in British politics with all the self-awareness of a toddler shitting on the floor then staring in astonishment at the big
2: pile of poo. Elsewhere, People's Princess Jeremy Corbyn was shitting all over his hashtag Grind for Corbyn campaign by pissing off his newfound millennial comrades. Chairman Corbs rode back on a reported election pledge to write off student debt on Sunday by saying it was never a commitment in the first place. Speaking to the BBC, Corbyn said no such promise had ever been made as, much like most 34-year-olds regarding their own unpaid 13-year debts, Labour had no idea how much they actually amounted to.
1: Over in America, Donald Trump gave an interview to the New York Times that sent everyone rushing to their phones slash law books slash cushions they scream into. After demonstrating that he didn't really understand how healthcare works, he claimed he'd never have hired Jeff Sessions... If he'd known he'd recuse himself from the Russian investigation and then said a thousand other things so bonkers, you could almost hear history tapping you on the shoulder and shouting, what the fuck are you people doing into your face? Now, just to be clear, I know me saying I called him a cunt every week might not stand up to the scrutiny of future generations, but I can take some comfort in the fact that I'm at least doing more than anyone in the Republican Party.
0: My favourite bit of Trump batshittery from the interview was his insistence that French President Emmanuel Macron just loves holding his tiny hand, a claim he made three times. He's a great guy, smart, strong, loves holding my hand, said Trump. Perhaps it's so you don't touch up his missus, pal, just saying.
1: Meanwhile, it was revealed this week that the actual Queen can't help but get up and boogie to Dancing Queen. Other royal family floor fillers presumably include I just can't wait to be king for Prince Charles, getting away with it for Prince Andrew,
0: and mummy, why must you continue to dress me like this for the under fives? I'd like to take the opportunity to say fuck you very much to the government for pushing the state pension age to 68, affecting 5.8 million workers, of which I'm one. Apparently, as someone is too young to have had access to a final salary pension scheme and too old to enjoy the full benefits of automatic enrolment, I'm part of what's known as the Sandwich Generation and the filling appears to be Dogshit, Broken Dreams and a Tory pube Also in the news this week
2: was Robert R. Kelly who it was alleged had been very much living up to his self-imposed moniker of the Pied Piper of R&B No, R. had not been rounding up youngsters and leading them into a mysterious mountain never to be seen again but instead it was claimed had lured several young women into various houses across the Chicago and Atlanta areas According to BuzzFeed Former members of Kelly's entourage alleged that six women were being kept in properties rented by the 90s R&B star where he controls, and I quote, every aspect of their lives. It's a feeling R will be familiar with, no doubt, having written in his 2012 autobiography, Solar Coaster. Sometimes I feel like I've been abducted by my gift, kidnapped and taken away to a musical place never to be found again.
1: Continuing his long-standing belief that he is in any way relevant, Piers Morgan had a crack at mansplaining tennis to one of the greatest players of all time this week. When Marin Silich cried over a blister at the Wimbledon final, that very bastion of manliness, Morgan, tweeted that the tennis player should get a grip and stop sobbing like a baby, calling him pathetic with all the unearned dick swingery of a Vietnam War avoider Trump saying that Vietnam War hero John McCain isn't all that. Navratilova pointed out it was probably the frustration rather than the pain that caused the tears, to which Morgan, who likely last soldiered through a blister when it was on the palm of his hand, responded with scorn. Even Chris Everett chipped in to tell the journalist he was talking out of his arse, although what does she know? She's just a woman who won some tennis matches.
0: Boots the Chemist nearly had to change its slogan from Here Come the Girls to, um, where have all the girls gone? After its frankly ludicrous decision to keep morning after pill prices high so as not to, quote... Incentivise inappropriate use. Jog on, boots, you outdated moralistic twonk, roared the internet, the PLP, and the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. Threats of a boycott soon had the UK's biggest high street pharmacy apologising for being a colossal prick. Also, boots, while I've got you, women, not girls. Thanks.
2: And in other news, the remains of Salvador Dali were exhumed this week, but not to check if they turned into a melting clock on an elephant's back. In fact, the artist's remains were exhumed for a paternity suit by 61-year-old tarot card reader Pilar Abel, who we presume, given her profession, has some insight into the matter. Most excitingly, Dali's trademark Tash stunned forensic experts by having remained completely intact. More news
0: as it's unearthed. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week. It's that part of the week where we examine how the mainstream media is talking about women while repeatedly smacking our head against a brick wall. Or glass ceiling, whichever's closest. Game of Thrones is back. It's good to see Maisie Williams return to our screens, although it might be causing consternation back at Daily Mail HQ. The online arm of the publication excelled itself in outraged gobsmackery at the fact women undergo the ageing process with the headline A Girl Grows Up! If you're in any doubt about just how surprised Dacre's Pit of Snakes was that this has been allowed to happen, there was an exclamation mark to convey incredulity. Presumably all the question marks had been used up on DM Hot Potatoes like, why is this woman out of the house and how racist is too racist? The article, and yes I am doing air quotes around the word article, was about Williams wearing a green dress and being 20. 20? When she used to be a child? Stop the fucking press! To disguise its disgust at the sheer temerity of the woman, the male instead got all giddy about the thigh-high split and low neckline of said frock before tugging itself raw while crying in the shower.
3: Hello, Rosie Wilby, relationship expert here. Well, I say relationship expert because I've had quite a few of them, but then that might mean I'm no good at them, I suppose, because none of them have lasted. But what I have done is written a trilogy of shows all about how they work, and read a lot of science books written by the people who really are experts. So here's my guide to breakups. Again, I've had quite a few of them. Perhaps because I've chosen the wrong people, I've tended to go for people at the peak of their dysfunction. Alcoholics, agoraphobics, obsessive compulsives, gambling addicts. It was particularly difficult going out with an agoraphobic, someone who didn't really go out And what was particularly annoying was after years of me nagging each of them about their alcoholism, agoraphobia, gambling addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, they would eventually go and get help and sort themselves out, but only after we'd broken up and become a much nicer partner for the next person. And it's a bit like, you know when you're trying to open the lid on a jar and you're like, oh, I just can't open that. And you pass it to someone else and they go, oh, it's really easy. And you go, but I loosened the lid. So anyway, we're talking about breakups today. Um, we're talking about the real, the real, oh, the real angsty, the real oh, heartbreakers—Romeo uh, and Juliet, Antony and Cleopatra, Kylie and Jason. We're not talking about those those casual breakups, you know, um, when somebody dumps you when you've just been seeing each other for a bit of fun. That they've done you a favour, really, and there is a little bit of disappointment, isn't there, that they've got in there first. it's a bit like the disappointment you feel when you come to the end of one of those moving walkways at the airport. Now there are different methods of course about how to dump somebody and we seem to have very different feelings about how we like to dump someone and how we might like to be dumped ourselves. Modern technology of course facilitates the perhaps slightly more cowardly way of sending someone an email or a text or an instant message. I was dumped by email a few years ago and I did feel better about it once I'd read it a few times and then corrected her spelling and punctuation and changed the font yeah Times New Roman seemed a bit cold a bit harsh I thought Ariel much more embracing of our shared history together you know if you type break up into windings actually a little police car comes up yeah the love police coming to get you I should have seen that breakup coming, of course, because she got me a much nicer Christmas present that year. It's always a sign, isn't it? Yeah, she got me a flat in Inverness. Now, most of us say that we would rather get dumped face to face and be able to look the person in the eyes. Now, you could do what my friend did and plan a speedy getaway. She spent the entire breakup coffee conversation wearing roller skates under the table. And when she did eventually speed off, her ex thought that she was a weirdo that she was better off without anyway, thus easing her guilt. Now, there's a lot of new language around ending relationships, one of the main ones being conscious uncoupling, which just so happens to be the title of my Edinburgh show. Yeah, come and see it, everyone. It uh, does have its detractors. Kate Smirthwaite, fellow comedian, said she would only utter it if she had accidentally swallowed poison And that was her only way of regurgitating it. But never mind its associations with Gwyneth Paltrow, which might be why some people don't like it, lesbians were actually the godmothers of conscious uncoupling. For many decades, gay women were renowned for their compassionate, ethical breakups and a sense of celebrating ongoing family and companionship with ex-partners. But really, it was because it was a small community and there was nobody else to be friends with. You had to be nice to your exes, exes, is ex, because is X is X, that usually turned out to be you. Now, other phrases that have come into the lexicon of relationship endings recently are uh, ghosting, which is, of course, behaving a bit like a dick and disappearing with no trace. Icing, which is putting someone on hold, because, well, you kind of want to keep them hanging on in case nothing better comes along, but you're not really that into them. And breadcrumbing, which is leading someone on with hot and flirty text messages but with no intention of actually acting upon it. And finally, as for the future of breakups, I have suggested the idea of a decompression year, a mutually agreed 12-month unravelling and winding down period. And scientists are actually discussing the possibility of an anti-love drug, yes a pill to forget an ex, a real-life eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Mind you, if I'd had a relationship with Kate Winslet, I wouldn't want to be forgetting that. Ah, Kate. Well, anyway, I hope that is of some use to you dumpies out there. That is my guide to breakups. Rosie will be signing off.
4: Hi, I'm Hazel Davis, journalist and fringe audience veteran. And here's my guide to hitting the Edinburgh Fringe like a champ. The Edinburgh Fringe takes place from the fourth to the twenty eighth of August this year and and every year, apparently, theres a bigger festival around the same time, but yeah wes so the very first time I ever went to the fringe, I was there as a journalist on a press pass, and I was a pig in shit. I basically walked about the place open-mouthed, blagged free tickets to every single show going, and did tiny waves of excitement every time I saw Nicholas Parsons walk past. I managed to interview some of my all-time heroes and I spent the rest of the time nodding knowingly at them every time I saw them. It was awesome. These days I'm a little bit more jaded, but there's still nothing quite like the thrill of the fringe. But you do have to do it properly. So tip number one, don't take your family, or partner, or friends. They're basically a drain on your time and resources, and they don't appreciate it. Just do it alone. You can wake up when you want, fall into bed when, and where, and with whom you like. The very first time I took my other half, he uh, naively assumed that we might watch one show in an evening and then spend the rest of the time in the museum or in cafes or together. Yeah, right. He was surprised to learn that I would be flitting from darkened room to darkened room and only going home when I was certain I'd seen every single up-and-comer. I was there for the full experience. And you can only experience this on your own. Tip number two. Don't only go and see the big names. By all means, go and see your favourites, but do take a punt on the unknowns. And it can be quite hard to know where to start if you're not on stand-up regular. But read through the listings mags, that might give you a good idea. Ask friends for recommendations, have a look at the posters, have a look at the reviews. There's so much free stuff around that even if you end up watching the worst show of your life, and that will happen at 11am, then you've basically sheltered from the rain for free and avoided paying for a Starbucks. But also, do take a pump with your wallet too. £8 for a show is probably still less than you'd end up paying for a full breakfast in a cafe and you're supporting the arts, so don't be a tightwad. There is nothing quite like taking a chance on a random name and sharing the secret love with the eight or three other people in the room. It really rocks. Their late night shows can be wonderful and dazzling collections of comics keen to get their voices heard, sharpen their skills or just share, sharing their love. Things like Old Rope where leading comedians do new material or Late in Life which has a rolling line-up can be really special occasions. You never see the same act twice and you might witness something really, really special so it's worth keeping an eye out for those. Tip number three, don't assume that all the good shows are in the evening or even at the Pleasance, which is the huge big venue. It can be quite tempting to roll out of bed at noon and plan to stay out. But sometimes comics have planned their shows for that time because they've got kids or partners also performing. Bridget Christie's show, for example, last year was about something like 10am. And I know because I sat on the step waiting for someone to not turn up so I could get their ticket, which I did. And it was brilliant. Tip number four, accommodation. So you kind of have to have some sort of... The best tip is to have bought property in Edinburgh about 100 years ago or have gone there to university and stayed or marry an Edinburgh resident or comedian. Um, if it's too late to do any of these, then apart from sleeping on the street, there are some other ways. I've camped a few times, uh, but because it's Edinburgh, even the campsites a few miles out have up their prices. But this is a relatively stress-free way to do the Fringe and many of them are on good bus routes, but you are completely fucked if it rains. The universities rent their accommodation out of the summer, again for inflated prices, but this is nowhere near as bad as the hotels and you do need to book well in advance. Uh, because I'm a pensioner, Airbnb didn't really exist when I first started going to the Fringe, um, but I imagine like so many other things, this could be a mix of the horrific and the wonderful, so it's worth looking at, booking far in advance, getting recommendations from people. Uh, the final option, and one that I have managed to expertly wangle, is to make friends with extremely friendly pensioners whose children have moved away and who can't be asked with the hassle of renting out their rooms during the summer. Woohoo! If I hadn't managed this, I was considering visiting the city several times a year and striking up random conversation in a cafe in the hope that it would lead to one of those "Anytime you're in town, look us up" things. Tip number five, food and drink. Uh, Just don't eat, really, is probably the best piece of advice. Uh, You won't be able to sit in a cafe at all or meet up with anybody at a set time because all the cafes and restaurants are all busy all of the time. Um, So probably the best piece of advice is to get a job in a cafe if you ever want to sit inside one or make a packed lunch every morning and take it with you. This might sound a bit ridiculous, but come back to me when you've been and we'll see whether I was right. If you don't, you'll spend your time queue-hogging or waiting till three to have lunch because the crowds will have passed. They won't ever. The other option is jacket potatoes with haggis in the street. Uh, this is another personal favourite and a good cheap-ish option. But again, the best the best option is just to not eat at all. I don't really drink so I can't advise on the best watering holes but I think it's fair to say that in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland you're not going to go short for somewhere to booze uh, but it is Edinburgh so it is going to be expensive and it's going to be even more expensive during the Fringe so the best advice is to maybe take a hip flask So that's my guide to getting the best from the Fringe It is the greatest show on earth and the highlight of my summer and if you see me sitting on the Royal Mile swigging from a hip flask and eating a Crest body, come and say hello uh, uh,
5: uh. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Milliken, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. Now, as I've been doing the last couple of weeks, I've got two questions uh, to answer. The first is from Lee Dunn and Lee Dunn asks, at what point does talking to other people's pets become weird? Now, it sort of depends if you're a pet kind of person. Uh, you know, there are some people who don't like animals and I always think they're sort of Step one in becoming serial killers, probably. So I try and ignore them, and avoid them if I can. So the people who love animals, you know, like the cool people, the brilliant people like us, um, it's not weird at all. <laughs> in fact, it's weird if you don't acknowledge an animal. It's in fact, I find it quite rude. Um, I say hello to all animals, um, whether I'm with people or not. Don't care. When my husband and I go around a zoo or, like, a safari park, it takes ages because we say hello. Oh, hello, hello, hello. We say hello to all of the animals. Uh, We were once driving around a safari park and the cars behind us overtook us because we were going too slowly. To be fair, they were going too fast. Who needs to drive that fast past lions? Anyway... Um, so thanks, Lee, for your question. I hope that helps. Uh, it's not remotely weird. You just keep doing what you're doing, Flower. You're being brilliant and doing a smashing job. Another question I've got is from Brindy Wilcox, and Brindy asks, "Will it be the weekend sooner if I wear Saturday pants on Thursday?" Now I like your logic, Brindy. It's a good. It's good logic. Um, I'm interested in is, <laughs> as to whether these pants are like labeled you know like the days of the week pants or whether you just have special pants that you wear on a Saturday I'd love to know what kind of pants they were I don't know if I have Saturday pants I think it's because the weekend isn't really the weekend if you're a comedian that's kind of a big working day for us so I'd probably have like Monday pants which to be fair is just no pants um So the question, it doesn't actually affect the calendar because it would be really unfair on everybody else if everybody else had like plans, like fun plans as well. And just because you had your special pants on, it meant that everybody else lost actual days. So logically, it's a stupid question, but I really like that you have Saturday pants. Uh, So just well done on that. If you could wear your Saturday pants every day, does that mean that you're slovenly or does that mean that you're like super relaxed and cool as fuck? I really want to know. Get back to me, please. Thank you very much for your questions, you guys. Uh, I hope you have a lovely week. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you.
6: Standard Issue for all women. Hi, my name's Sarah Ledger. I'm a writer and columnist and a teacher. We've recently had a wedding in our family. My daughter Jessie married her partner Matthew in June. As a well-brought-up socialist feminist Amazon, she was astonished to find that getting married meant she'd be expected to cast aside her principles and conform to a set of stereotypes she's been resisting all her life for the sake of a day. Marriage is a tricky business. One minute you're sensible, grounded, independent, the next you've fallen head over heels and you've decided that not only do you want to spend the rest of your life with him, You want to make that declaration a legal certainty and you want to invite your friends and family along to the party. I use the pronoun him advisedly and I'm talking to women here. That's not because I don't rejoice in same-sex marriage. I do. It's about bloody time. But there are certain patriarchal pitfalls that are specific to heterosexual marriage. Jessie had to navigate and in some case steer very clear of those pitfalls in order to have the wedding that reflected her values. To start with, there's the proposal. This is where we first encounter the language of business and the idea that marriage is a transaction whereby the woman is transferred from the possession of one person, usually a man, usually her father, into the possession of another, her husband. I'm sure that in most modern relationships, there's no prospective groom who goes ahead and asks the permission of his father-in-law to marry his daughter before he discusses it with the daughter in question herself. But even asking afterwards bothers me. I've known women who've bought their own house, forged a career, climbed mountains, overcome disease, had kids, won awards. I need to point out, this isn't the same woman. It's a kind of montage. Women who've not asked their dad's permission for anything since they were 12, who in fact have been defying their dad's permission ever since they were 14, and answered his question, where the bloody hell do you think you're going dressed like that, with a single word out, accompanied by a slam door for emphasis. Even these women blush coyly when the permission question crops up. My advice in this instance is to fathers or even the occasional mother. If you want a feminist wedding for your daughter, the answer to please can I have permission to marry her is ask yourself. She'll tell you. Did Matthew ask permission? Of course he fucking didn't. He knows Jessie's a person, not the last magnum in the freezer drawer. Then we come to the issue of proposing. Why does anyone have to ask? Why does it have to be a man? When Jessie was asked how did he propose, and she was asked it often, she said we agreed. It was at the point between the announcement of the wedding and the big day itself that Jessie refused to identify as a bride. The expectations of what it means to be a bride were so far from her day-to-day reality she simply couldn't do it. She became the unbride. The assumption from most of her friends was that she'd been planning this day since she was a little girl. As she pointed out, my mother brought me up to be many things. She didn't raise me to be a bride. She made the decision not to be given away by either her dad or by me, as she's no one's property. She and Matt did exchange rings, although contrary to popular belief, rings are not required to make a wedding legally binding. At the reception, Jessie made it clear no one would speak on her behalf. She was not going to stand there silent. She made a speech herself. She had a best woman and refused bridesmaids on the ground. There's no need for little girls to dress up as mini brides and aspire to becoming a bride themselves. There was no wedding cake to be symbolically sliced up by the groom. There was an irony, as Jessie pointed out in her own wedding speech, that the unbride turned up dressed pretty much as, well, a bride. Fair enough. Even an Amazon warrior is entitled to wear a glamorous dress every now and then. And what a bride she was. This was a DIY wedding. Jessie and Matt organised it themselves. They set up the hall beforehand, they made the playlist, they danced and mingled. And like a post-feminist Cinderella, just before midnight, Jess hitched up her wedding train and along with her husband, she cleared the table, swept the floor and put out the rubbish at her own reception. She's kept her own name. And just last week, in the name of gender equality, she carried Matthew, all six foot five of him, over the threshold of their new flat. The remarkable thing about all of this is that in 2017, any of this is remarkable at all. I know I might be a tiresome old unreconstructed second wave feminist, but symbolism, whether it's a ceremonial giving away or a white dress signifying purity, matters. If that's your thing, fine. Your choice of wedding doesn't define your gender politics. But if it's not your thing... Then take control, make it yours, so that our future daughters don't have to be exchanged like property in the name of tradition.
1: Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box Hi, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and as usual I'm here to bang on about television. This week, work began in the writers' room of the new series of classic sitcom Roseanne. The idea began as a sketch when John Goodman appeared on Sarah Gilbert's chat show and rapidly became a fully-fledged reunion, and it's hard not to get excited about it. Because it will be excellent? Well, who knows? Like any sitcom, Roseanne was afflicted by the law of diminishing returns, with its ninth and final season being almost universally panned. But here's hoping the 20-year gap will provide the necessary spark, although for me, The very existence of a new season is cause for celebration regardless. Because, while TV planners believe we have an infinite capacity for repeats of Friends and the Big Bang Theory, Roseanne has long since vanished from our screens. So, if the new series achieves nothing else but to pique interest, then maybe the UK market might finally get to see it again. Or, heaven forbid, be able to buy it on iTunes. So, why should we still give a shit about Roseanne? I'll tell you for why. Firstly, it's funny like laugh-out-loud funny, still. And while I'm obviously going to go on to praise the series for a whole host of other reasons, keep this in your mind, Roseanne is all about the jokes. And while I understand that the real genius of comedy is in the writing, the delivery plays some part in its success. And the series' three central performances are amazing, Roseanne Barr's background in stand-up means she's excellent with the witty rejoinder, but it also means she can really deliver a story. And whenever she gets to tuck into an anecdote, the result is generally gold. John Goodman, who plays her husband Dan, is a great mimic and capable of almost endless sticking around. And Laurie Metcalf, who plays Roseanne's long-suffering sister Jackie, does stuff with her eyes that I didn't think was possible. The series also benefits from having three genuinely gifted child actors, the aforementioned Gilbert, along with Lacey Goranson and Michael Fishman, who was only six when the series started. All three had to say things that would be pretty excruciating to just talk about at that age, let alone in front of a live audience, and yet they always deliver. The second reason Roseanne deserves your attention is that it's all about women, and I don't just mean it has a lot of women in it. While the series is often praised for putting not one but two LGBT characters in a primetime show, Much like that other stalwart of 80s TV, Cagney and Lacey, the sitcom is often forgotten in conversations about pioneering women's TV. But I'd happily bet a fiver with anyone claiming that Sex in the City or Girls broke a particular television barrier that hadn't already been kicked down by Roseanne. Menstruation, masturbation, contraception, the question of having slept with more people than he has, underage sex. There was very little that the series didn't throw at the audience not as something shocking, but as something that was just part of life. Perhaps nothing demonstrates this better than Roseanne's grandmother, played by Shelley Winters, announcing that she'd had two illegal abortions in the 1920s. Yes, that's THE Shelley Winters. And while the series portrayed a world where domestic work was done by women, it never stopped pointing out that it wasn't actually women's work. In fact, it went further to point out that keeping a roof over a family's head isn't the preserve of a man, It's often money that Roseanne has earned or sometimes even money that Jackie has earned that keeps the wolf from the Connor door. Which brings me to the third reason Roseanne is such a classic, and that's that it's real. It's not for nothing that in our In Conversation events, I always answer Darlene Connor as the first female character I identified with. Darlene was short, with out-of-control hair, an older sister she fought like a cat with, and a younger brother she was often left in charge of. She had a smart mouth, which created almost as many problems as it solved. Her dad was self-employed, which meant that a lack of work or an injury put the family in some dire financial straits. And her mother worked all day and then came home and did 90% of the domestic chores for about 10% of the thanks she deserved. There's not a single thing I've said there that isn't also true of a younger me. And while I realise that something being exactly like my life isn't exactly a recommendation in itself, I'd hope it says something about the authenticity of Rodan. It's light years away from its contemporaries in the UK sitcoms market, who mostly show poorer families as lovable rogues, always up to something they shouldn't be, and yet always being miraculously saved, with a minute to go before the credits by some harebrained scheme. Roseanne is about a family that works hard and still gets their electricity cut off, but has a sense of humour about it. And that is pretty much what life is about. It's this authenticity that allows it to tackle some pretty tricky storylines, which brings me to my final point about why I love Roseanne. It goes to some pretty dark places. Probably the best way to demonstrate this is the way it treats violence. On the one hand, it's seen as something that's very much just part of life. Even Dan, who is mostly the good guy of the piece, isn't above getting involved in a bar brawl or putting his fist through things if he feels like it. On the other hand, we are often reminded that Roseanne and Jackie were beaten by their father and some of the series' best episodes are the ones that deal with the ongoing repercussions of that violence. Be that the properly moving episode in which Roseanne completely loses her shit and smacks DJ or the genuinely remarkable storyline that reveals that Jackie is the victim of domestic abuse. Now, this is the point in which I usually say, just go and watch it. But with Roseanne, that's a lot easier said than done. So here's hoping the new series means that that might change soon. If you want to talk Roseanne or any other hard-to-find TV series, I'm available to listen to a legitimate amount of bitching on Twitter, where I'm at that done, Until next time.
5: You play ball like a girl!
2: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly ramble through the green and pleasant land of women's sport. This week we open with a ginormous high five to England women's cricket team who on Sunday only bloody won the World Cup. And not just any World Cup, a home competition and the biggest women's World Cup in the sport yet. Over 27,000 fans watched the match from Lords on Sunday and an estimated global television audience of 100 million are thought to have watched. The team even made Monday's front pages so momentous was the occasion and such a far cry from four years ago in Mumbai where the tournament was hardly even recognised. It's amazing to see and it's an image that's becoming increasingly less jarring. It doesn't feel so tokenistic or out of place to see a female athlete on the front page of a newspaper now. Just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jo Conter on every single front page in the UK for being the first Brit in the women's single semi-final at Wimbledon in 39 years. Off the back of that performance, she's the first British woman to make it into the top five world rankings since 1984. But not only that, quarter quarterfinal against Simona Halep, it was reported last week, was watched by more people than the men's Wimbledon final. In fact, at its peak, a massive one million more than the peak audience of the men's final. And of course, if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that in football, the women's Euros have started. England are off to a cracking start, partly thanks to Jodie Taylor, a name you might have been hearing bandied around a bit in the last week. Taylor became the first woman to score a hat-trick for England in a major international tournament ever, as England absolutely whooped Scotland with a 6-0 victory in their opening game. She scored again on Sunday when England managed to pull off an astounding coup by beating Spain 2-0 despite the Spanish team holding 80% of possession in the game. Their next game is on Thursday against Portugal and will decide whether or not they progress to the quarter-finals. But it's not all good news, perhaps unsurprisingly in women's sport as it frequently is not. It was announced this week that the Rugby Football Union would not renew the contracts of the England women's team beyond the forthcoming World Cup as they look to defend their title. Instead, they're going to shift their focus to Rugby 7s, the sort of dumber, flashier sibling of Rugby 11s. So, sort of think the 2020 to Test cricket or the Ryan Lochte to Michael Phelps. It's not just a massive blow to women's sport, it's also going to result in job losses. Around 17 contracts are expected to be handed out as opposed to the 50 full and part-time contracts that currently exist. Let's hope a success in the impending tournament might alter that picture that's all for this week we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with more women's sportsings. things
0: welcome back to Dunleavy Does Disney Dunleavy what have you been watching
1: this week I have been watching The Fox and the Hound
0: have you seen it before uh, yes once when I was about eight um, and I remember liking it have you seen it Um, I I must have done. I feel like I must have seen it. But apart from working out what it is from the title, I have no recollection of it whatsoever. No, I think I've seen the trailer, and that's about it, yeah. Okay, so, fill us in. What did you make of it?
1: Basically, it's the story of two youngsters who meet and discover that they enjoy tussling and jumping into rivers together. But society isn't ready for their relationship yet. So after a brief summer together... They're doomed to spending the rest of their lives having infrequent but fiery encounters. So basically, it's Brokeback Mountain for children. (laughs) (laughs) Although, I have to say, don't get too excited because Brokeback Mountain is a masterpiece and The Fox and the Hound is probably not quite.
0: Is is there a lot of anal sex in The (laughs) Fox and the Hound? (laughs)
1: uh no not a great deal have you seen broke that mountain I haven't. Yes, i've this. read it i've read the book you haven't
0: no sorry i know oh, I've, seen... I've seen that and i've seen nothing we've had this conversation before and you have given me that same big-eyed what
2: <laughs> do you know i actually have a
1: dvd version of broke mountain in my bag in case you said that you haven't seen it <laughs> I'm
0: excited.
1: because i actually don't know what the fuck we're talking about this for <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't seen The Batman, Mountain I'm That's insane ass- Having
0: not seen it I'm going to assume That Jake Gyllenhaal And Heath Ledger Are wearing some kind of Animal mask The whole way through
1: Not so much No Ow. Are no. the Fox and the Hound As sort of brooding And gruff As a um, I don't want, so which which one is which which one is Ennis and which I, one is, is Jack?
0: One is called Brooding, the other one is called Gruff <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it, so so you've you know, never I, seen *Breakback no, Mountain*. No, I've never
4: seen okay. *The Hound*. Come down, seriously.
0: This
2: honest,
1: honestly, it's a it's, Mickey is the best film made in the 21st century, and you haven't seen it.
0: I've read the book, and it was very and, good. And they're brooding and quite Gruff in it. They um, are. Yeah, they are. Oh. I've heard that they really know so, how to smoke a cigarette. Very quiet. Is that code for something? I think so. I'm not sure what though because I'm not a gay man. Okay. Despite anyway, <laughs> back,
1: back to the infinitely less interesting Fox and the Hound. <laughs> We're right?
0: this film. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so you're lucky I'm gonna make you stop this. Watch the watch it, and then have to come back and attempt to laugh at my jokes. Well, <laughs> Ryan
0: <laughs> got About short, lost love. Shortly after she said that, she made me stop recording. and <laughs> go yeah. and watch Brokeback Mountain. Yeah okay so fox and the hound so
1: todd is the fox of the title okay um his mother is killed by dogs you know very bambi-esque move um and he's left hidden in some grass by her uh, before she gets killed by the dogs and this is seen by big mama who is an owl who inexplicably is always awake in the day (laughs) um and with the help of two birds who are called boomer and dinky she finds him a new mother in the form of a nearby pensioner because, as we all know, pensioners are the perfect age for anyone to be raising a child in a Disney film.
0: Is she played by Angela Lansbury?
1: She's not, but she's called she she's called Widow Tweed. Obviously. And she has all of the characterisation that you would expect someone with that name to have. Um, she calls the, the fox Todd because he reminds her of a toddler. Oh. and also presumably because she thinks at least one character in this film shouldn't sound like somebody's nickname for their own genitals
0: that's true i thought maybe she'd gone for todd because she was a big fan of mark guinea stenders uh, maybe i just
2: thought
0: it was is like is the hound called cole or like randy or something <laughs> uh now we're, no, we're back to man. In the hound is called copper <laughs> the hound is called get off i've got a date <laughs> the
1: hound is called Copper. He's a bloodhound puppy. He lives with his owner, Amos, who eats grits, whatever they are.
0: They're right. I okay. know. I are. Are. <laughs> right, actually, in a sort of disgusting. They're way. like a mash. I always they're thought sort of they were like, like a biscuit, but like oh, oh, they're a mash porridge. So <laughs> <laughs> You've not selling them to me, Joe. No, but
2: they're kind of like they're very salty and a bit wrong, but kind of so, anyway. <laughs> so, anyway, there's
1: another dog there. He is called Chief, which I'm pretty sure someone calls their Dick somewhere.
0: The more you're describing it, the more I feel I've seen this, like, last week.
1: (laughs) So, despite the fact that it's totally not in the Bible or nothing, Todd and Copper become friends and roll around together having the literal time of their young lives. We all have a bit of a tussle. But everything goes to shit when the real world comes calling, you know, and there's this long, drawn-out chase scene that comes accompanied by banjo music and a man's trousers falling down when he fires a gun.
0: Like comedy deliverance. Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Net result is Copper gets taken off to hunt varmints, whatever they are, Jem possibly knows. I, I can't help. Me. I think it's an American word for vermin, maybe. I thought they possibly. were like a really quite salty
0: mash. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay uh,
1: so he goes away, he disappears for as long as it takes for him to be come back and be played by Kurt Russell.
2: Yeah. Okay, so a little
0: while then. Yeah. Like 40
1: years. Yeah. The young one, the young copper, incidentally, is played by Corey <laughs> Feldman. He's <laughs> Corey Feldman.
0: He's called by Corey Feldman. When was this... Do we now... We'll have to
1: 1981. 1981.
0: Because oh, I wasn't 91, born. 1981.
1: He's, he's played by a young Corey Feldman and he grows up to be Kurt Russell, which is possibly preferable to growing up to be
2: an old Corey Feldman. In
0: fairness, I didn't think young Corey Feldman got any older. They just stayed young Corey
2: yeah. Yeah. Feldman. He was big he? brother not that long ago. So, like, it, it has... Happen.
1: My brother once bumped into him at Milton Keynes train station There's a fun fact That is a fun for fact you. Anyway um, So he gets about. taken off to hump varmints And Todd
0: Sorry, it's that a place or a
1: thing? It's, it's a, a thing A verb. It's a varmint It's a thing I believe it's no, like but he's,
0: Is he taken to hump varmints? No, to hunt. hunt Oh, I thought you said to hunt i broke full broke Mountain now I have <laughs> gone for, I thought you'd gone, you'd gone to hump varmints no. no, he's gone to hunt Humps Because oh, right, okay. he's, he's a hound That's what
2: he does this
0: is well, don't confuse me with logic.
1: Anyway, so, but Todd, Todd spends the winter with Big Mama.
2: Having an incongruous name. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: she's played by Pearl Bailey. Um, she has a resplendent, resplendent ruff and a fine set of pipes and is all about respecting your woman. So she's basically Aretha Franklin, if Aretha Franklin was an owl. Oh
0: my God. Aretha Franklin would be the best owl ever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And she, she spends the long winter months... Giving him little songs about how a fox and a hound should never be friends. Aww. Yeah. Well, uh, elsewhere there's this really there's this really long drawn out plot with Boomer and Dinky.
0: Can you remind me who they are?
1: They're two birds. They're trying to catch a caterpillar, and really all it took was for one person in the production meeting to say that idea is shit, and it didn't <laughs> happen. <laughs> Copper comes back. Todd. Is now played by Mickey Rooney, right? So that you that's like oh right. fuck? Mickey Rooney and Kurt Russell are in a film together.
2: <laughs> who knew? Is this before or after the plastic surgery?
1: Mickey Rooney. It's a cartoon, oh, Jen, you Tom can't, can't tell. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. Mickey Rooney.
2: Who looks like Colonel Gaddafi. Yeah. Inexplicable.
1: And they can't be friends anymore, obviously, because they're now played by Kurt Russell and. Uh, Mickey Rooney, and so Todd gets taken for a drive by his owner, who sort of leaves a hand-reared fox in the forest to survive by himself, which is actually kind of tragic, That's especially what you mean? especially since she doesn't bother to explain to him why she's doing it, even though she reads the poem out in her head that she's written for the occasion, but she doesn't say it to him.
0: What a bitch! Is the owner a human? She is the widow okay. Tweed. Oh, the widow Tweed. Yeah, yeah she's back. She's back. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it? Is it because she doesn't think he'll understand because he's a fox? I don't know. She spends either.
2: the rest of the time talking to him.
0: Do they ever talk to
2: each other? Like, is there ever an exchange between them verbally? Cause is it <laughs> like in Sixth Sense where Bruce
0: Willis doesn't talk to anyone whatsoever? No, 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 no. They, they do They, they do cannot. talk. So like she like, like,
2: says, what do you want for breakfast? And he oh, says, she she says, please. you've
0: knocked that over, you bugger. And, and he... Oh,
1: yeah so although to be fair he never doesn't stop knocking things over so it could it's just like be so they
2: actually have like verbal interactions who did she write the poem for like
0: maybe just herself okay anyway i think we got an insight into what james was on the <laughs> <all> weekend
1: <laughs> <laughs> so todd now lives in the in the forest by himself oh. right and he meets a badger who is nameless but might as well be called ukip <laughs> and tells him to go back where he came from and then he makes friends with a vixen. And does anybody want to guess what she's called? Vicky. It's close, it's close.
2: Oh, Victoria.
1: No, it's Vixie. That is so lazy.
2: That is, is beyond lazy. Yeah. Vixen the Vixen. Vixie. Vixie the Vixen. the Vixen. so lazy. Is she played
0: by goldie fucking horn? Uh, no,
1: I don't think so. Oh. No, I'm almost certain not.
2: Thank
0: you for giving her a full name. Goldie <laughs> fucking horn. <laughs> anyway, almost immediately... It's an ice cream <laughs> my phone just told us it was time for bed
1: <laughs> oh i oh, sorry good night <laughs> almost immediately she starts talking about how many children they're gonna have which is the sort of shit that always happens in disney films but actually to be fair it's probably an accurate representation of the life of a lady fox hello i've met you here's seven kids inside you Anyway, they have another run in with Copper and Co, and the two become sworn enemies. And I have to say, it was at this point that I started to wonder why the hell I had enjoyed the, this film when I was younger. Yeah. But I have to say, the last 20 minutes are actually cracking. There's a massive fight between the fox and the hound that is so full on that my cats actually started fighting <laughs> when I was watching it. they, Yeah, they didn't know what was happening. Um, and then there's, um, then there's a massive fight with a bear. Why did the bear I know, from? seriously, it goes full on The Revenants at this point, which is actually kind of exciting for a kid's film. And then Amos tries to shoot Todd, the fox, and Copper stands in the way.
2: Who's
1: Amos? Amos, is, he's, the, he's the owner, the old bastard. Right, Keep okay. up, Jen. What? There's a
2: lot of names here.
1: Right. And Copper stands in his way and does this really long whine, which I have been reliably informed is dog for I don't know how to quit you. And then he goes back to the farm with his owner and Todd runs off to live in the wood with his new girlfriend. And in an inexplicable and not entirely feminist move, the widow Tweed ends up nursing that miserable old shit, Amos, back to health because he
0: trod in an animal trap, the end. Wow, well, I mean, I'm... (laughs) a tiny bit scared to ask this, but is is there a message we can take from this? Yeah, film? there is,
1: and actually as far as Disney films go, it's not a bad one. You know, friends are friends regardless of whether they woof or screech.
0: But only if you have to fight a bear. Oh, I
2: feel like this is a great analogy for like, you know, Britain.
0: So what are we giving it, what is the score?
1: A score. Well I mean there are honestly there are more swanny whistles in this than there are in We Are the Champions. And more sniffing than they went on on the Happy Mondays tour bus. But nonetheless... <laughs> nonetheless, I actually quite liked it. I'm going to give it three stolen fishing trip weekends out of five.
0: That sounds like a fair score. I'm kind of keen to watch it. If I was to watch this or Brokeback Mountain, which would you suggest?
1: I'd, I'd go for Brokeback Mountain. That's all for this week, thanks for listening. Next week's podcast will be a live recording from our July event where I spoke to our glorious founder Sarah Millican along with Janet Street Porter, Ellie Taylor and Lisa Tarbuck. If you want to come to one of our live events, and let's face it, who wouldn't? You can still get tickets for our next show, which is at the Leicester Square Theatre in that London, on August the sixth, where you'll get to see Ashling B, Kate Thornton, Holly Walsh and brace yourselves, me. We've got other events coming up around the country, including Edinburgh, Cheltenham and Leamington Spa, details of which can be found at Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. While you're there, you might want to pop over to our membership page where you can join the Standard Issue Gang for as little as £10. Other things you might find the time to do if, for example, you're in a very boring meeting or trying to stop people talking to you on public transport is to go to Podomatic or iTunes to rate or review our podcasts or you could send us a message on Twitter where we are at Standard Issue UK or on Facebook or Instagram. We're all ears. Or, to be more accurate, eyes, which is probably good because I actually can't find my hearing aid. Our music was composed by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved, and our thanks, as ever, to David Young, Mary Young and John Clare for their help with The Stings. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay frosty.